So Matthew chapter 6, and if you can, I'll invite you to stand up. Starting in verse 5. Here's the word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the, in the, at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. That's the purpose, to be seen. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans, Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. From the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Please be seated. Father, we, once again, we come before you as dependent children and we ask you to help us. Help me, help the congregation. We all, we all here will give an account for this next hour. I will give an account for what I'm preaching. And all the listeners will give an account for how they listen. So we all here need your help. Give us your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. Empower us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Who here knows the name Peter Beskendorf? Does anybody here know Peter Beskendorf? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm truly wondering if anybody knows this name, Peter Beskendorf. No. I'll give you a clue. It goes back to the Reformation. Master Peter. Anybody knows Master Peter? How about Master Peter the Barber? No, Peter Beskendorf was Martin Luther's barber. And he was a member of Luther's church. And he was very frustrated with his prayer life. Therefore, he asked one day, as Luther was getting his hair done, he asked Luther to teach him how to pray. And Luther, as a very caring, loving shepherd, despite all his busy schedule, wrote a letter or a booklet, A Simple Way to Pray, where he teaches his barber how to pray. In the prayer in this book, Luther tells Peter, be the first business of your morning and the last at night. And then he also says, I suckle at the Lord's prayer like a child. And as an old man, eat and drink from it and never get my fill. But one thing that's fascinating when Luther, Luther was writing to Peter was when he says, he says the following, So, Peter, a good and attentive barber 
keeps his thoughts, attention, and eyes on the razor. And you remember, back in the day, the razors were not small, tiny things. They were massive. He keeps his attention, his thoughts, his eyes on the razor and hair. And does not forget how far he has gotten with his shaving or cutting. If he wants to engage in too much conversation or let his mind wander or look somewhere else, he's likely to cut his customer's mouth, nose, or even his throat. Thus, if anything is to be done well, it requires full, the full attention of all one's senses and members. As the proverb says, He who thinks of many things, thinks of nothing, and does nothing right. And that applies to many of us here in our lives. So many thoughts. I need to do that. I want to do that. I want to... And you're not thinking about anything and you end up doing nothing. How much more in prayer? So he says, how much more does prayer call for concentration and singleness of heart if it is to be a good prayer? And Luther is saying, we all, like a barber, must keep our eyes, our attention, our thoughts on the Lord's Prayer if we are to pray God-centered prayers. Prayers that the Lord will answer us, that will glorify His name. And I believe that the reason why so much of your prayer life is weak, pathetic, boring, is because you have no concentration, attention, focus, knowledge of prayer. Therefore, much of your prayers are as ugly heinous and gruesome as a cut nose, a cut ear, and a cut throat. Because you're not focusing. So Luther's advice is excellent for all of us. Keep your eyes, your mind, your attention on the Lord's Prayer. That will help you. Your prayer life will not be a disaster. So, as we come to the Lord's Prayer, you remember the context, and that's Matthew chapter 6. And here's a question that requires a lot of knowledge of Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. What comes before chapter 6? Chapter 5. That's excellent. Look at you scholars here. And what is chapter 5 all about? The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Jesus. Perfect answer. Jesus' authority. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus' authority. As a new Moses, as a greater Moses... He goes up the mountain and He's giving a new Torah, a new instruction to God's true people. And begins by Him declaring the Beatitudes and His authority. You heard this, but I tell you this. You heard that, but I tell you this. It's His authority in interpreting the Scriptures. And no wonder the Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter 7 with what? How were the crowds? Amazed at His authority. That's how it ends. And His authority is demonstrated as He's placing, as the King, He's placing His hand in every single area of His disciples' lives. And the life of prayer does not escape that. He places His hands in our prayer life. And He places His authority. And He says, you must pray like this. I have authority to tell you how to pray. So, you see, prayer is not up to you to decide how to pray. 
Jesus, the Lord of our lives, must also teach us how to pray. Amen? Good. Well, that's where we are. Cannot spend much time here. Uh, here's the outline, and my longing is to finish the first three petitions today. So, we're going to be looking at the first three petitions. So, I will let you know right now that I will move fast with these slides. I'll try to preach faster than normal. So don't be disturbed or frustrated because you cannot write down the things. Some people sent me an email last week and they said, Hey, can you please send me your notes? And that rejoiced my heart. You see how people were eager to know more about prayer. So the same thing, if you want them, the notes, just email me. I can send you my notes. But just so you know, I'm, I need to move faster. We could spend months in the Lord's Prayer. That's not my desire. I mean, it is my desire, but not right now. <laughs> we need to go back to Philippians. Okay? So, let's move. And we saw, let, just review from last Lord's Day, we saw how prayer is precious. Prayer is a precious gift of God to His children. And it's precious because it was bought with the blood of Jesus. The only reason we can pray is because Jesus died on our behalf and He brought us into a relationship with God the Father. So now we can call upon the name of the Father. Amen? And that's important because some of, some of us here come from a Roman Catholic background. And in the Roman Catholic background, prayer is actually punishment. The Lord's prayer is actually a punishment upon you. Oh, you sin, so go and pretend our fathers. <laughs> and as you become a Christian, you see that prayer is not a punishment, it's a privilege. It's a gracious privilege of spending time with the Father and casting upon Him all our anxieties because He cares about us. So we saw that last Lord's Day. We saw also how not to pray, and that verses 5 through 8. So before Jesus builds up the frame, he must, he must demolish the old way of praying. And that's what He does in verses 5 through 8. So if you did not listen to this sermon last Lord's Day, go back. I'm not going to spend time here. I explain what He says about standing and desiring to be seen by others. The only thing I want to mention here is that today, today in the Christian circles... There are many unbiblical ways of praying also. That's very popular. So, the demolishing part continues today in Christian circles. Let me just mention, it's very popular today, contemplative prayer. Contemplative, contemplative prayer. And that's a, a, a perversion of what they call Lectio Divina. Or theophostic prayer. And these prayers are actually syncretism when you're mixing different religions. So you're mixing Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, monastic practice, Buddhism, yoga, and other types of prayer. Similar to Jesus calling. Prayer is not Jesus calling. Prayer is to call on the name of Jesus. It's the completely opposite. Books like The Boy Who Cried Abba, The Emotionally Healthy Church, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And that's published by Zondervan. So, and all these things teach unbiblical ways of praying. Prayer in the Bible is to call upon the name of the Lord. You are to speak to God. Okay? You speak to Him, and you speak to Him what He commands us to speak to Him. So I don't have time to go through here, but all these ideas that you can spend time by, in prayer by emptying your mind, letting God reveal things from your past, that has nothing to do with biblical prayer. Meditation in the Bible is to read the Scriptures and chew, chew in the Scriptures. You fill your mind. That's meditating in the Bible. You are filling your mind. There's nothing of emptying your mind. 
And so much in the Christian circle is, is very popular now of these things of just emptying yourself, spending time in, in, in quietness. And there's always passage out of context. Be still and know that I'm God. Yes, God says, shut up. I'm in heaven. Stop murmuring and grumbling and complaining. All right. So he demolishes how we are not supposed to pray, and he moves how to pray, and that's verse 9, beginning of verse 9. So he says, pray then like this. And the pray, the, ver- the verb there is in the imperative. It's a command. Meaning that all our prayers must be not a, just an empty repetition, but all our prayers must be in line, must be framed by this prayer here that the Lord is giving us. It's important as we are going through, you need to be thinking about your prayer life and say, huh, does it match with the Lord's command and His pattern that He's giving me? From the moment I I begin my prayer and the body of my prayer, is it matching with what the Lord commands? He says, pray then like this. And the important word is like this. Meaning, it's an example, it's a pattern. As I said last Lord's Day, is like a skeleton. You have the bones, the structure, and then we fill up with flesh and muscles. Okay. And before we start digging the Lord's Prayer, I just want to give you three important observations about the Lord's Prayer. The first one we saw last Lord's Day is that the Lord's Prayer is a family prayer. It's a family prayer. It's not a a private, individualistic ritual. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us. Deliver us. Reminding us that our lives are not in solitude. We are one soldier in the army. We are one child in the family. We are one sheep in the flock. We are one brick, one brick in the temple building. That's very important. And goes against our individualistic mentality. Also, the Lord's Prayer is brief but brutal. It's brutal, it's violent. You cannot domesticate this prayer here. Short in length, but it's lethal in power. It changed my life completely. Not just my prayer life, but my life, this prayer. takes less than 20 seconds to read aloud, but it takes a lifetime to learn. It's concise, yet comprehensive. All the major themes of the Bible are covered in this prayer. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. It touches the past, the present, and the future. It covers spiritual and physical aspects. It has adoration, petition, and confession. It speaks of the blessings and judgment. It touches the church and the lost. So it's brief but brutal. And lastly, the Lord's Prayer reveals God's priorities. God's priorities. Much of our prayers are focused in our priority, right? Much of our prayer is what I need, what I want. And we go to the Lord's Prayer and we say, huh, that's what God wants. It's all about His priorities. Our prayers are full of my needs, my physical needs. How many petitions are there in the Lord's Prayer about physical needs? One, for physical needs, just one, give us our daily bread. That's the completely opposite of so much of our prayers today. It's His name, His kingdom, His will. He pardons, He protects, He provides. So the Lord's Prayer stands against the prevailing idea among many Christians that prayer is nothing more than rushing into God's presence with one's spiritual grocery list. An instant gratification. Okay? Good. So we move, we have all the aspects laid before us. And now let's start journeying through the prayer. We have the invocation. The invocation, how the prayer opens. Our Father. Our Father. It's not our Mother. It's not our Celestial Mother. 
And you see so many of liberal theologians today, and they are saying, no longer father, let's call him mother, celestial mother. And you don't know, so many people have bad fathers. Welcome to humanity. All of humanity is marked by bad fathers. There is no perfect father. And you have both extremes. You have fathers who were violent. Some of us here had fathers who were extremely violent. Others had fathers who were the opposite. Pathetic in spoiling us. You had some here who had no father. The father disappeared. And the Lord says, it doesn't matter. You do not project your experience into my character. I teach you what father is, fatherhood is. So we need to stop with this thing. Oh, so and so has such a hard time starting the prayer with our father. Because you just don't know what her father did to her. Stop. Stop. That's idolatry. We are projecting. Our experience to God's attributes. And God said, no. I define myself. I define fatherhood. Amen? That's important. Maybe your father was Nero, Hitler, or Stalin. Or maybe your father was Mr. Rogers. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. You have the best father of all if you're a Christian. You have a perfect father. Our Father, He's the best. He's the source of all goodness. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Or James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift from above, coming down from whom? The Father of light. So He is the best Father. Unlike human fathers who are often engrossed in their smartphones, and have no attention to their children. Our Heavenly Father, as Jesus says, is ready to watch us and reward us. We don't need to try to get His attention. It's not like He's on His phone all the time, ignoring His children. He's ready, watching His children. So through faith in the sacrifice of Christ, we are no longer children of wrath, no longer sons of Adam, no longer children of the devil, no longer children of disobedience, but children of God. And you can call the God of the universe Father. Father. I was thinking about this privilege. Honestly, I probably would have a hard time setting up a meeting with the owner of this gym here. Because I'm a nobody. If I call Governor Kate Brown and say, hey, I'd like to meet with you, what do you think she's going to say? Yeah, oh yeah, just come here. Who are you? Can you imagine me trying to set up an appointment with the President of the United States? And yet, through Jesus, we can come to the God of the universe, the King of kings, and call Him Father. What a privilege it is. So the invocation, our Father proclaims that God is our progenitor. He's our protector. He's patient. He's our provider. He's ready to pardon. He's ready to discipline us. Amen? He's the perfect pattern to be imitated Reveals his proximity. So, it's a beautiful invocation. Just the beginning of the prayer. Our Father. So much theology there. So much theology there. That turns into praise. But look at where the Father is. Where is the Father? Who is in heaven. That's very important. Because our tendency is to... Get the proximity, get the, the, the closeness of God and transform that into something sinful and pervert. We are prone to get God who is so eager to be close to us and transform Him into a, a grandpa, pop, Santa Claus. Lose reverence, lose respect. So the 
the perfect pattern teaches us that there is no space for the Christian to come to God, the Father, like that. It requires reverence, respect, honor. Talk about the transcendence of God. You have the imminence, His proximity, and the transcendence of God. And He's in the heavens. That's a very important word, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Literally says, in the heavens. In contrast to the earthly realm. Matthew is famous for speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And the heavens refer to God's otherness. He's above us. So when we pray, we must balance God's goodness with His greatness to avoid a syrupy sentimentality on the one hand and austere, stern apathy on the other. When we come to this loving, gracious, eager to reward Father, we must remember that He's also King. He's in heaven. His temple, He's holy. It requires reverence. Honor. The author of Ecclesiastes says, and that helps us under, understand our prayer life here, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven. And you are on earth. And here's the, what he says. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business. And a fool's voice with many words. So you remember as we are coming to pray. Remember that he's eager to hear us. That he's our father. That he loves us. That he cares for us. That he protects us. But at the same time, he's above us. Is higher than us. We are creatures. We are earthly. We are limited. His wisdom, power, knowledge, plans, and insight are above ours. Amen? So, all that's going on around us, with all the political uproar, and God says, I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. You are on earth. Who knows more? Also, when you say our Father who is in heaven, that should enlarge our hearts to desire to be where? Where the Father is. And now, where the Son is, seated by the right hand of the Father. As we say, our Father who is in heaven, that should be aspiring and a longing in your hearts to be where? In heaven with the Father. Reminds us that we are pilgrims here. Pilgrims progress here. So, as you can see, the first opening is just the invocation on our Father who is in heaven. You have ammunition here. You spend hours in prayer, just praising Him, adoring Him for who He is. It's a vast ocean for you to swim freely or dive deeply. Amen? So let's move to the first three petitions. Let me move out of here. Yes, the first three petitions. And we see here... The first three petitions, the unbelievers, just by the first three petitions, we, we see the unbelievers hate the Lord's Prayer. Amen? We see a lot of unbelievers praying the Lord's Prayer. Just saw on TV last week, a lot of people are thinking in Washington, D.C., all gathered together, and there was a... who knows what he was doing there. He probably calls himself a pastor. And all oh, this vast number of people in Washington, D.C., and they're all praying what? The Lord's Prayer. A bunch of unbelievers. Oh, yes, there were believers there. But a bunch of unbelievers praying the Lord's Prayer. And we see that often. And let me tell you, unbelievers hate this prayer. 
They hate this prayer with all their guts. They think the unbeliever wants God's kingdom to come. They think they love God's kingdom. They think they love God's will, the Bible. They think they want to obey the Bible. They think they want to honor God's name. So we see here that this prayer is very specific for God's people. It's the prayer that must be flowing from a heart that was transformed by the gospel. So the first petition is, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, Jesus says. And I asked the kids last night, what does he mean? And the kids had no idea. And it, it, it's, it can be a hard petition, right? Hallowed be your name. Uh, the first thing I said, you guys know the word Halloween? Halloween. Oh, yeah. The Hallows, Eve. The saints. To hallow. Comes to the, from the word to sanctify. The Greek word hagios. I don't know if I have here. Yes, I do. The verb hagiatsu. To set apart as holy. To treat as holy. Speaks of reverence, honor. So that's the first verb. And then you have name. And throughout the scriptures, the name represents what? O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. And refers to the attributes of God, the character of God. So, there's something here, as we are thinking through, about setting apart, honoring who God is. But there is more, as I was thinking about this prayer. What is the name of God that's in the context here? Father. Father. That's the name that Jesus is referring. Father. Huh. We as children of God bear His name. We carry His name. Please listen here, that's important. I was telling the kids, let's suppose you go to a Salem Heights children's retreat. And then you go there and you, you girls show your naughtiness and you break the glass in the building and you hurt people. And they're going to say, oh, those are the Bajos kids. Why? Because you bear the name of the family. You carry the name of your father. We, as Christians, we bear the name of the father. He adopted us. We were baptized into the name of the father and the son. Meaning, now we belong to him. And I was thinking about the third commandment. And the Ten Commandments. And you think about Jesus now as a greater Moses. Giving a new Torah to His people. And that's the completely opposite. Remember the third commandment? You shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. To bear the name is to carry the name. Israel had been called to carry Yahweh's name. They had been adopted by God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The church's first petition must be, help us, help us not to profane the name of the Father that we carry. Help us to set apart in all that we do this glorious name of the Father who adopted us. So when people look at us, they can blame us and slander us but never because of sinful things that we do, but because of their own hostility towards the gospel. So that's very important. The church bears God's name and must show forth how awesome and majestic is our God. So, when you're thinking about a decision to make, when you have a decision to make, that must be the first petition in your prayer. Father, empower me to honor the name that I bear. 
Whatever I'm about to do, Lord, I do not want to bring shame to Your name. And that's something that I pray. Lord, kill me. Kill me before I bring shame to Your name in the church. Kill me. But do not let me bring dishonor to the name of the Father who is so holy and so loving and so merciful. So that's what we see here. And the second petition. Your kingdom come. I think that's the most glorious petition. And stands in between the, the, three, the first three. Your kingdom come. Actually in Greek it says come. It's an imperative and begins with come. Showing the eagerness. Come what? What are we asking to come? Come. Healing for my cancer. A new job. No. Your kingdom. Come. Your kingdom. In your kingdom, the kingdom of God is the theme of all these scriptures. This petition embodies the whole storyline of the Bible. And what is the storyline of the Bible? The coming of the kingdom of God. The whole Bible is about the presence of God through the coming of His kingdom. From Eden to the New Jerusalem. God's kingdom coming. The kingdom of God has two major aspects as we study the kingdom of God through all the Scriptures. You have, very similar to Revelation, you have the general revelation as Luke so well put here. Nature, creation, declares that there is a God. That's why the, the, the author of the hymn says, He speaks to me everywhere. Everywhere I look, I can see nature declaring that there is a Creator, a majestic God. So when you come to the kingdom, similarly, you have the universal or the general kingship or the reign of God. And that's throughout all the Bible. He is the King of kings. His reign, His kingdom is for all eternity. It's everlasting. Go to Daniel and you see over and over again. But I don't think Jesus is talking about this universal kingdom. I believe Jesus is speaking about the covenantal or the special kingdom of God. And it refers to God's kingship, His reign over the hearts of His people. And we know that from the context and also from Jesus Himself. Do you remember when the Pharisees come to Jesus in Luke 17? And they say, when, when is this kingdom that you're talking about? When is this kingdom going to come? We look around and we see the only Romans around us. When is this kingdom going to come? And do you remember what Jesus says? The kingdom is within. Is within. Is inside God's people. Paul gets this theology and he says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. But what is the kingdom of God according to Paul? Romans 14. Righteousness, peace and joy, where? In the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what Jesus is talking about. John is taught, he says, the kingdom of God is his royal rule. Again, as he's already holy, so he is already king. Reigning in absolute sovereignty over both nature and history. Yet, when Jesus came, He announced a new and special break-in of the kingly rule of God. With all the blessings of salvation and the demands of submission which the divine rule implies. And here what He says, To pray that His kingdom may come is to pray both that it may grow as through the church's witness, People submit to Jesus and that soon it will be consummated when Jesus returns in glory to take His power and reign. So since the kingdom is already inaugurated, when you pray your kingdom come, you are praying for the expansion of the kingdom and at the same time the consummation of the kingdom. So here are some thoughts as we, we are praying your kingdom come. We are asking our Father to conquer our selfish and self-centered kingdoms. Amen? The kingdom of me and myself. That's, that's what sin does. 
Sin places a royal throne in your heart and then places you there. Sin is all about you being the king and your kingdom coming. Right? So many fights we have, so many arguments we have, is because my kingdom didn't come. Oh, my kingdom didn't come, therefore I'm angry and upset. So when we are asking the Father for His kingdom to come, we are asking Him to conquer our selfish and self-centered kingdom. We are asking God to rule in our lives together through His Word and His Spirit, because that's how the kingdom expands, through His Word and through His Spirit. We are asking God's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit to conquer our self-righteousness, our selfish distress and our apathy. To pray your kingdom come is to pray that we may go through trials and painful situations. Ha! Ah, I don't want your kingdom come. I thought that the coming of the kingdom was just going to bring prosperity. And you look at these scriptures. The kingdom of God is inseparable from pain and trial and persecution. Listen to the king's words. John 18.36 My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Ay, ay, ay. If my kingdom was of this world, I would not be suffering. I would be conquering you physically. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Therefore, I'll be crucified. So don't expect you have a crucified kingdom and a kingdom that only brings prosperity to you. That's heresy. Or Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must, we must enter the kingdom of God. Oosh. So when I pray your kingdom come... I'm opening myself to suffer and be persecuted for God's sake. Amen. How about John? Revelation 1.9 I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. It's inseparable. I'm your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. Okay? To pray your kingdom come is to pray for a heart eager to repent. Remember, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is no coming of the kingdom and entrance into the kingdom without repentance and faith. Your kingdom come means that we are praying for the conversion of the lost. It's a missionary prayer. Your kingdom come and conquer that nasty, ugly, devilish kingdom that's in that person's heart. Your kingdom come. Conquer that. Save that person. Your kingdom come means that we long for Jesus to come and bring the consummation of His kingdom. So it becomes kind of a precatory prayer. What is a precatory prayer? Prayer. Remember those prayers in the in the psalm where God calls the, the psalmist calls God to come and and kick the jaws of my enemy, smash the skull of my enemies. So there is an aspect. Your kingdom come because when God's kingdom come, always. Salvation and judgment. It's inseparable. Salvation and judgment. That's the cross. Salvation and judgment. And it's amazing how the Bible ends. If you go to Revelation, do you know what the last prayer of the Bible is? Come, Lord Jesus. Meaning, let your kingdom come. Come. So, may the petition, your kingdom come, be the engine in our hearts. Imagine a church that's longing, praying, asking, your kingdom come. Less fights, less arguments, right? Because <laughs> it's not about my kingdom, but about His kingdom. So, and lastly, and we get here, your will be done. That's the last of the first three petitions. Your will be done. And notice, so far in the prayer, there is nothing, nothing 
about your personal needs. That so much prevail in our prayers. You see, our prayers are, are similar to a grocery list that we just want to give to God. Here's what I need. Please give me that. And Jesus shows us that prayer is far away from that. Prayer is about God. God's name. God's kingdom. And now God's will. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask, if somebody comes to you and says, What does it mean, your will be done? What would you answer? What would you say to someone who says, Hey, I read that, the Lord's Prayer. What does it mean, your will be done? Sadly, we are so prone to think about God's will, the Lord's will, as something related to what? My! My life! My future! Isn't that true? Oh, I don't know if I should take that job. I don't know if I should start dating this person. I don't know if I should marry that person. I don't know if I should go to school in that place. Can you pray that the Lord's will be done? That's how we think. We, we are so selfish. We think that the Lord's will is all about my life. It's all about me. What I want. My future decisions. And you go through the Scriptures... And it has nothing to do with that God's will. D. Carson, he helps us. He says, Very frequently, we are inclined to use the expression, the will of God, to refer to God's will for my vocation or for some aspect of my future that is determined by an impending choice. We seek the Lord's will over whom we should marry, over major purchases, over what church to attend when we move to a new city. Nevertheless, this focus is often quite misleading, perhaps even dangerous. For it encourages me to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of my future, my vocation, my needs. And that's often another form of self-centeredness, no matter how piously put. Worse, it expunges from my consciousness the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of the Lord. What God has commanded is His will, our responsibility is to do it. What is the will of the Lord? I'll help you. That's the embodiment of all that He wants from us. Amen? The Word of God. When Jesus says, Your will be done, He's not talking about a secret will for my personal life. He's talking about the Scriptures. People obeying His will that has been revealed. And we know that Jesus is not talking about my personal, my personal future, my personal choices, because of what He says. He says, your will be done, how? On earth as it is in heaven. Do you think angels and the glorified people in heaven are doing, are concerned about your future? Is that what they're doing in heaven? Do you think they're all freaking out because Rick is trying to decide if he buys a different car? Because Ben is deciding if he should purchase that house. Do you think heaven is stopped? And all the angels and the glorified people now are concerned about his next decision. No. What they're doing in heaven is obeying what God commands them to do. That's what's taking place in heaven. Also, the context of Matthew. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, I did, this, I did this this week. And every time you have the obeying or doing the will of the Father, refers to what God has commanded. So even Jesus, in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, oh, if possible, pass this cup. But not my will, but your will be done. What is He talking about? The revealed will of God. God had told. He knew. Isaiah 53. He's not talking about a secret will. He knows the will. Has been revealed. And He must go through. He must obey. Also the context of Matthew. Once again, Jesus is giving a new Torah. New instructions to His people. 
And those are hard instructions. Let me tell you. You're not supposed to not only commit adultery, but you're supposed to be looking lustfully to a woman. And he started giving this higher standard. Therefore, we must be praying, Oh, help me to obey your new commandments. Empower us to obey your new instructions. And also the context of the whole Bible. If you study the Bible, you see that God's will is primarily the Scriptures. The Scriptures. The psalmist says, Help me, empower me to do your will. To obey your will. And there is one passage that's crucial here, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Look at what God says. The secret things belong to the Lord. What is the secret things? What job to go next? Should I move to that place or not? Decisions in life. Should I buy a watermelon or papaya? The secret things belong to the Lord. Look okay, how he says. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His instruction. Meaning, what I have not revealed to you is none of your business. It's none of your business. But what I have revealed to you, you go and do it. That's my will for your life. Or the New Testament. You might say, that's Old Testament. Give us the New Testament. Here's the New Testament. Paul says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God for my life? And Paul gives you your sanctification to become more like Christ. And how do you walk in sanctification? By obeying His commandments. Or 1 Thessalonians 5. You can see the church in Thessalonica was struggling with the will of God. So Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. So what you're supposed to know about the will of God, He has revealed to you. And there is, there, it's very now, so many books... How to know God's will for my life. It's very popular. Very popular. Books about how to discern the will of God for my life. And the Bible says, it's none of your business. The will that I have for you has been revealed and your duty is to obey that. So, and that, that, that's supposed to help us, brothers and sisters, on Wednesday nights when you're praying. And you have there, your will be done. And now you know. A lot of times you're, oh, so and so doesn't know if she should have a, a vacation in Paris or in Hawaii. Let's pray, your will be done. That has nothing to do with the petition. That has nothing to do with the petition. A better way of putting here is, so and so is struggling with sin. So let us pray that He will obey the, way, the will of the Lord right now as it is in heaven. And that's important. Because He says, as it is in heaven. How is the will of God done in heaven? Are the angels sitting around and they hear the command of the Lord and they say, ah, just a sec, I'll do that later, Yahweh, King of Kings. How are the angels and the glorified saints doing the will of God in heaven? Perfectly. With joy, eagerness, without hesitation, without procrastination. Dependable. And so many, so many Christians like that. In obeying God's commandments. No, 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 just like in heaven. We are embassy of heaven. We need to reflect heaven as a church. Therefore, our obedience must reflect the obedience in heaven. 
Amen? So, imagine the revolution in our lives when we start praying prayers following this pattern of the Lord's Prayer. That will change us completely. Transform us completely. Boring prayers, dull, lifeless, apathetic, mindless prayers are no longer an excuse in our church. Amen? Amen? And we are not done yet. The Lord's Prayer is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's an insurgent prayer. It stands against our flesh, our ways. In praying this prayer, we invite God to conquer us. There is violent mercy here. So, we have a lot of ammunition for our prayer life. Amen? Just this beginning here. The invocation and the first three petitions. Our Father. And you can just swim in this ocean of truthfulness, I have been adopted by you. I can come to you as a child, no longer, no longer a child of Satan. That's crazy. I can come to you as a child of yours. No longer a child of wrath. And I have brothers and sisters that you have given me. That's why I say, Our Father, I have a, a family, a new family. And I remember, you are in heaven. Help me to shut up when I think that I know more than you. Help me to trust your wisdom. You are in charge of things. I'm earthly. Oh, hallowed be your name. Thank you for adopting me. But now help me. Help me with this decision. Help me as a church. To honor your name. Do not let us bring shame and dishonor to your name. Because your name is holy. Your kingdom come. No longer my kingdom. My kingdom is pathetic. It's ugly. Stinky. But your kingdom is beautiful. Full of peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. Oh, let your kingdom come upon my children, Lord. Rescue them. Transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Oh, your kingdom come. That person has been profaning your name. So come, King, and judge if it's your will. Judge that. Or conquer and save that person. But do not let things go the way they're going. Your kingdom come in this situation. Your kingdom come in our church. So we are no longer trying to impose our own personal kingdoms. And your will be done. Oh Lord, help me to be obedient. I have been struggling with this sin. Let me put to death that. Let me obey just like the angels obey you. Help us as a church to be obedient to you. Eager to obey you. Forgive me for procrastinating and being lazy in obeying your commandments. They are so clear. So do you see? Start changing us. Transforming us. And that's the beauty of this prayer. So, as Luther said, keep your eyes, keep your attention and your focus on this prayer. And you will produce beautiful things through this prayer. Father, our Loving and gracious, yet mighty and holy Father. We thank You for Your kindness towards us in confronting us, in challenging us, in changing us, in disciplining us. You are a glorious Father and we praise You. Thank You for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Your Son. Thank You for giving us Your will. We know what you are supposed to do, Lord. So help us to do it quickly, joyfully, with eagerness. Just like the angels in heaven and the saints 
that are around the throne of Christ. Thank You for teaching us how to pray, Lord. Thank You for teaching us how to pray. Left to ourselves, we would create the most heinous and the ugliest prayers of all. Always centered on ourselves. So thank You. And empower us. Empower us to pray prayers that honor Your name as a church for the glory of Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen.